Today's episode of The Day of Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say yes to a proposal from your significant other and start a family or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Today's show is also brought to you by Zycam. I hate cold season. It always seems to derail work, personal life, and with Hugo and work this year being busier than ever, I am always going to try anything I can to alleviate and get rid of my symptoms. So I always trust Zycam. Trusting Zycam to knock out a cold at the first sneeze of the season. Other cold medicines only mask cold symptoms, but Zycam is homeopathic and clinically proven to shorten colds when taken at the first sign. Not only is Zycam cold remedy safe and effective, but the sorted fruit medicated fruit drops are delicious and they come in orange, lemon, and cherry flavors. You can find Zycam cold remedy products at all major retailers, including Walmart. Visit Zycam.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, to receive a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. Happy New Year, everyone. Can't believe it's 2020. Hope everyone had a great holiday season. We were gone for two weeks, hiatus. Everyone needed a break. I am in Las Vegas right now at Major Domo Meat and Fish. We've been open a few days now, but this is the most important time to get the culture right. I'm not going to talk too much about Major Domo Meat and Fish, because we are going to do a pre-opening diaries and a post-opening diaries. And I'll get to more about pre-opening diaries in a second. But wanted to use this first podcast of the year to sort of talk about what we have planned this year, say uh, a syllabus, if you will. 2019 was crazy. We want to really fuck around with the podcast more and more and to dial it in more, to better produce it and to offer you guys better content. And thank you again for all the support and listenership. But 2019 was tough to do, not just to do the podcast, but for the restaurants that we opened up, filming the Netflix shows, Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner coming out a couple months ago or three months ago. And uh, we have season two of Ugly Delicious and filming Hulu shows. Media has taken more and more time. Very thankful that we have a great CEO and Marguerite Mariscal running Momofuku, And the idea was I would be able to have more time to do media. And while I do, you know, my New Year's resolution is to find a better balance with work and to take better care of myself, both my physical and mental. So I've realized I can't really be a better leader for the people that work for us because I just don't think my lifestyle is very sustainable right now. And I just want to share that with you. So to hold myself accountable, but uh, I have a real problem with work. It's not easy for me not to work because I derive a lot of meaning from it. But 
This year is pretty jam-packed, 2020. We got more restaurant, uh, one more restaurant to open up in Vancouver. We got to do the second floor of Wyo in the South Street Seaport area. We have a slider shop called Moon Palace to open up at the Palazzo and uh, eventually opening up this all-you-can-eat buffet in the Palazzo as well. You know, filming the Hulu shows, Olympics in Tokyo with NBC. But the thing that I'm most uncomfortable talking about is the one that I better get used to talking about is a book that's being released in May, mid-May, I believe, called Eat a Peach. And I have uh, wildly uncomfortable talking about even as a memoir. And um, I think we'll probably do a pre-opening diaries of it as well. But that's going to take a lot of my time and uh, figuring out how we can work a podcast with all of that happening. But I promise you guys, talking to the media team, we're trying to figure out how to better integrate things that are happening in my life so we can give you better content as a podcast. So as a podcaster, one thing I'm trying to do, which is a continuation of last year's resolution, is be a better listener, number one. And number two, don't talk so fucking much. And (laughs) number three, don't curse as much. And number four... Figure out how to do a podcast where it's not so self-absorbed and narcissistic. That's something I'm very aware of, and uh, it's a fine line to toe being a podcast and having guests and to sort of just dump emotional stuff on this thing. So I'm very, very aware, and we want to be the best sort of podcast for all of you. And I know that a lot of listeners work in the hospitality industry, but we have a lot of listeners that don't. And that's exciting because we don't just talk about food. And I think that there's entry points to learn more about food and vice versa. Because one of the things I genuinely believe in, and you've heard me talk about it time and time again, is food is the cultural currency of the younger generation in America and the world over. And it's hard to understand where food's going. And if we can look at other parts of culture, whether it be music, art, sports, fashion, whatever, it can give us better insight as to how to be better prepared in this industry. And there are a lot of parallels and overlaps. So I really want this year to be focused on the creative process in other areas, not just in restaurants. We will cover a lot more restaurants for sure, but the format that we're going to try to focus on is the pre-opening diaries Because I think the creative moment where you're almost done with the project that you've worked so hard to do and you're about to release it to the world is a terrifying yet exhilarating feeling where you have enough body of work to reflect upon and you're starting to gear in in your head how to explain what it is that you did. And there are a lot of similarities from other fields that I've observed or witnessed or people that have created something that I feel is very similar to that moment where you're just about to open a restaurant. And this is a call to anyone that you know of, so we can schedule this in the calendar year of 2020, how to do a pre-opening diaries of people that are publishing a book, film, music, technology, theater, you name it. The whole spectrum of culture and creativity is something that we would like to explore more of. And it's not just uh, you having the idea. We really want to talk to people that are just about to be finished with it and do a pre-opening diaries of 
what that is, for example, we have a couple banked already. We have a musician and we have a filmmaker. Alan Yang is uh, releasing on Netflix in March his very personal film, Tiger Tail. We recorded something a couple months ago because he was in the process of wrapping it up, finishing the editing and, and adding music and doing the score and all that. And I've known Alan a long time and I've never seen him this passionate and this involved in a project because he always is and he always is so on top of it. But it was very encouraging for me to see him at a different level. And as his friend, I wanted to know more about his state of mind because it was very, uh, I wouldn't say inspiring, but I found it to be thrilling to see where he's at evolve as an artist and as someone that's expressing something very personal. And one of the things I like about the pre-opening diaries from my own perspective, having done it for the restaurants that we've done, whether it be Major Domo or Cowie, is it allows you to sort of brain dump and not to worry about talking to a journalist where your ideas have to be condensed into 250 words or a thousand words or something in print because things get edited out. And I think the podcast might be the best forum to let someone just express themselves and where they're at and why they did something, the potential criticisms, the ebbs and flow of the entire creative process. And I think that's all very interesting. So we want to capture that on this podcast. So if you know of someone or if you are about to release something in 2020, send us an email at askdave at majordomomedia.com and let's get a podcast session done and we can help you promote it and help you have some control of something you've worked very hard to put out there in the world. I would be very excited if 2020 could be the year of the pre-opening diaries of any creative project. So... That being said, I want to do a quick rundown of some of the things that I am focusing on this year, not necessarily trends or predictions, but there's been a lot of different ways to look at food, and it's not just the ingredients. One of the things that I think is going to be a topic of conversation more and more, and uh, I'm just sort of sharing my thoughts, is food delivery whether that be ghost kitchens or some kind of delivery service. It's something that I've explored a lot. I've started two businesses, seen the highs, seen the lows. And there is a ton of money being poured into food delivery, any kind of food delivery, whether it be Postmates, Grubhub, you name it, not just in urban areas. Food delivery is going to be more important than ever before. And how that impacts the restaurant industry of brick-and-mortar restaurants, I don't know. And I'm, I'm worried about it because the business is hard enough as it is. And if people are ordering home one to two to three times a week, how does that affect the margins in a restaurant? And people are dining out potentially less and less. And there's, a, again, a lot of reasons why that could be happening too many restaurants that are serving the same thing, quality not being good enough, so on and so forth. But for me, without pontificating on the technology and how it might impact sort of the economy of it all, I just wanted to talk very quickly about food delivery. And I think what we're all missing potentially is there are countries and food cultures that have been doing it for a long time. Having spent time in Korea, you have the dosidak lunch boxes, but Man, if you spend time in Seoul, you're going to see motorbikes and scooters with all kinds of stuff, most notably probably jajimyeon. And 
the black soybean delicious noodles that are sort of the Korean version of Chinese food. And food delivery in Seoul is part of the culture. So there's a lot to be learned there. Again, in China, if you go to Beijing, you're going to see so much food delivery. It's crazy. And I think they're allowed to do it because the labor laws are very different there. So you have bento boxes in Japan and Tiffin in India. So it's not like the idea of food delivery is new. And obviously the success of Domino's, you know, if you invested in Domino's like 10 years ago, it would have been one of the best, maybe the best investment if you did such a thing. But I have a lot of concern as to people saying that it's new. And I think that what we need to think about is what food delivers well. Secondly, and I think maybe probably more importantly to what food delivers well, because it's really just pizza right now and Chinese food. How is it possible that we're going to be able to make it good when humans still have to make the food? And uh, I've always thought and I've said that whoever wins this food delivery game is going to be able to bridge the gap between two very different cultures of technology and of restaurant workers. And I don't know who that's going to be. It's a very tall, almost impossible task, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, you could have the greatest technology in the world and all this stuff. You could have drones maybe delivering food and all that shit, but humans still have to make the food. And I want to make sure that that doesn't get forgotten. But the other concern to that is this, is, you know, I've talked to enough people and it sounds crazy and dystopian, but... One of my great fears for not just 2020, but I think the next 10 years is robots and automation taking jobs. It's going to happen. I'm not sure exactly. I think it's going to be maybe more dishwashing, cleaning units, frying, right? Like if you just think about the fry station, it's such a uh, repetitive motion that eventually is going to get automated. So things that are repetition are going to get automated. But if you work in a restaurant, you know repetition is everything. So I don't know if we'll ever see it in a lifetime, but I think that you're going to see parts of automation happening. I think San Francisco Chronicle reviewed a restaurant that was automated and I think it was a burger joint. You're going to see more and more of it. And that's my concern. I think that what's going to happen with these food delivery services is they're going to think that technology can actually solve for the human equation. And I just don't know if that's possible or if we can make that better for humans too. So yeah, I have my doubts, but it's something that I think we all need to explore. I don't think it's going to go away and you're going to see a lot more options for food delivery. But at the end of the day, you're only going to have one or two people win out. You know, I'm always going to be an advocate for the restaurant industry and restaurants. And I just have great concern as to how it's going to shake out. How does it affect the smaller mom and pop shops or even the mid-tier restaurants? Because the way food is going, it's going to be high-end, counter, experiential restaurants, and then everything that's quick service and casual. And uh, the bread and butter of food that I love is the in-between. And I just don't see how that can survive in a world where you can get food delivered. But the problem, again, in food delivery is right now, the best food that you can get delivered is pizza. Everything else is sort of not as good. Chinese food is a great deliverable food for a variety of reasons. Anyway, I could talk all day really about food delivery. I just wanted to talk and give you a heads up that it's top of mind for me. The other concern I have is the environment. We did a podcast with David Wallace Wells and he wrote a terrifying book that is 
necessary to read called The Uninhabitable Earth. Encourage you to listen to that podcast again, and hopefully David can come back to talk about this. I think I've given a lot of lip service to the environment over the years, but life changes when a baby's born. And with Hugo now, I want to be a better custodian, and I've been questioning a lot of different things. But with these brush fires in Australia, a country I spent a tremendous amount of time and love for, how does that affect our food system? Even when the fires in LA happened, like I just remembered not being able to get certain fish and crabs or vegetables. And I think that's going to be more of the norm. And I think customer expectations have to be realistic too, because we're not supposed to have everything. I think that we have lost how special getting certain ingredients are. And uh, it's a much larger conversation as to the restaurants that we have and the restaurants we try to celebrate, but we maybe need to get a future that is not as delicious to sort of figure out how to create a sustainable environment for food and how we eat and to do all of these things. And I'm completely aware of the hypocrisy for me just talking about that as I open up more restaurants. And I'm just being very honest. I'm trying to figure it out like everyone else, and um, I want to do it right, and I just don't know how. But these fires are real, and I think they're going to continue to happen, and the droughts are real. And how do we serve food in restaurants? How do we be part of a food community when the environment is literally not making it possible to do? And it's water shortages. It's all these things. And you know, ultimately, the question is, is are restaurants even viable? I don't know. But it's hard to be in food when things are not going well around the world. And um, I think about it more than ever. And it's not just thinking, it's trying to find some action. And there are a lot of worthy causes, whether it's malnutrition or food deserts, food banks, all of these things are problematic in food. But for me, the the top of mind, most important thing is probably the environment because everything sort of uh, stems from that. So I'm trying to arm myself with more information and how to be better about it. But I want to get David Wallace Wells in again to give us a dose of reality. The other big topic that I am terrified of, and sorry to start off the new year with my paranoia, but it is what it is, and uh, you you get to see what uh, I think about a lot, is this proposed tariff by the Trump administration to do a 100% tax on certain things from the EU, most notably wines and some alcohol and cheese and such. The Washington Post, the New York Times, like Eric Asimov just came up with a good article how it probably will decimate the hospitality industry. I'm not here to talk about how they theoretically support local artisans and purveyors of food, blah, blah, blah. I can simply tell you from my perspective that there's not enough people in this industry talking about this. And if this tax goes into effect, it will fucking crush the smaller restaurants, the wine bars, the mid-market restaurants. Those huge companies that have giant wine reserves, they're going to be fine. In fact, they're probably going to benefit from this. I don't understand why they would do this tax. The only positive I could see about this tax is it would reduce carbon footprint. Literally, that would be it. And maybe that's what we need to do. And it's a positive tertiary effect of what this is. I would rather have this tax and know that that would be the reason for it, but it is not. And I'm just concerned because I can see how A lot of my friends that are in this business, particularly selling wine, will be negatively and adversely affected by this. Man, 
100% tax, please. Like there's already been a markup in wine, but it's been sort of absorbed by the supply chain. But if you sell wine from Europe, particularly uh, what you would want to be an affordable bottled wine, and I would imagine that would disappear. And losing that and not having that delicious source of stuff and that terroir, I can't imagine what's going to happen. The food will ultimately be less delicious. And uh, I think the Trump administration has made food much worse for a variety of reasons. And if this happens, I think not good things. So I wanted just to talk about that because I wanted to remind everyone the only thing that we can do is to register and to vote and to express what we want as change by voting. And uh, man, I'm really fucking scared of this tariff. I just don't know what else to say about it. This business is fucking hard enough as it is. And to have that, I just don't feel the consumer base is willing to understand that quite yet in terms of how expensive certain products need to be. The other thing I see and hear more and more talking to other restaurant owners and chefs is the tight house laws. If you're not familiar with the tight house laws, they're a vestige of the prohibition era of America where you cannot sell, produce, or distribute alcohol. You can only do one of those things. Sell, distribute, produce. For instance, I can sell wine to my own restaurants, but only my own restaurants if I make it. I can't sell it to anyone else. So if there's a beer company, for instance, I can't promote it. I can't do a commercial and do a national campaign about it and sell that beer to my restaurants. I know that the liquor laws are a little bit different across the board, but I do believe the tight house laws are pretty much the same across the board as well. And if we're going to have rules and regulation changes that negatively affects the bottom line of restaurants, we need to have different ways of making our ends meet. And I really believe that tight house laws have to change. We need to be able to sell our own alcohol and distribute it to a larger audience than just your own restaurant. Because here's the fucking crazy thing. I can sell marijuana, but I can't sell alcohol to other people, right? I could start a marijuana clinic in California and dispensary, theoretically, but I can't sell alcohol that I produce. I can grow marijuana, I can sell it, but I can't theoretically do it with alcohol. And I just, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I've heard probably from a handful of people the past year that they need to explore and would love to sell their own wine or beer, but they're prevented from doing so. And there's other ways, right? Like if you divest yourself, blah, blah. I, I don't want to go into the, the minutia of Tidehouse laws, but I really hope we can find a way to change them and to find a way to get this as a vote so the laws can change because we need more avenues for new sources of income in this industry. And the Tidehouse laws, I think, are preventing that. Otherwise, I just think restaurants are going to start selling marijuana or something like that. The last sort of thing I wanted to talk about, and it's not as dire or depressing as the environment or food tariffs, but the other thing that was interesting by the end of the year was food criticism. And on Twitter and social media, I feel like a lot of food critics were in disagreement or up in arms or in total agreement with this review article written by Theodore Gioia. I can't even pronounce his name properly. In the LA Review of Books, the midlife crisis of the American Restaurant Review. I'm happy that this 
essay was published, there's a variety of viewpoints. For me, I don't want to talk about the validity of anything. I think that diversity and criticism is important. And I don't question anybody that's writing for a publication as an advocate for their readership base and the consumer. What I question is, who is that readership base and the consumer? And I think that you're going to find some correlation into some kind of lack of diversity. And that's natural, right? Like you want to write for your audience, but it's also hard when you're trying to write about food that's not of that audience. And you can see that historically in the past, right? Like if people know nothing about Chinese culture and you don't have a Chinese readership or you don't have an African-American readership, but you're reviewing food that they don't understand or it's not something they eat at, there's going to be a disconnect. So I think maybe the question is, how do you increase that readership? How do you diversify that readership? To me, that's what I hope this sort of new way of writing about food happens. To me, again, I've talked about it in the past. I thought one of the best things I've read all year in any kind of food criticism, and it's a hard thing to agree with, was Tejo Rao's review of the three Michelin star dining in Napa Valley. And I'm friends with all of these chefs at Single Thread, at Meadowood, at French Laundry. And if I were them, I'd be pissed off, but I'm trying to separate and, and to appreciate for what it was. Tejo didn't say these restaurants suck. She basically said they're amazing, but they're not for her. And I thought taking that position was so fucking important. And um, that's what I mean is about maybe writing for a different audience and not worrying about trying to please everyone. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of articulating it, but I think the answer is there. And when I also think about not just food writing, but other ways people consume food writing and knowledge and tidbits, you know, besides Yelp, the rise of infatuation is to me incredibly powerful. Personally, I think it's myopic and I think it's incredibly potentially damaging because it creates this sort of monoculture of what food can be. And it's very reductive, again, to me in a, in a potentially damaging way. I know that a lot of people follow it. It drives a lot of business, but I have a lot of questions. And the thing that I think for me that I, I want to study more about the infatuation is people use it a lot. It is useful. In fact, that it almost embraces the idea of American pragmatism is, is that maybe food reviews need to be simply someone's take on what's good, what's bad, and why you should eat here. And it's as simple as that. And I still love food criticism. I still read as much of it as possible. But you cannot argue against the fact that something like the infatuation is more important to someone that is, say, younger, a Gen Z or younger millennial than the New York Times, which is crazy to me. But I wonder how the future of food criticism looks like if we just took a more pragmatic approach, taking the more philosophical outlook than the definition of the word of what is most useful. The power of food criticism should be the most useful. And then that directly translates, I guess, to useful for who? What kind of readership base are you writing for? And I think therein lies the problem. And we need to either realize that that's just too insular or how do we sort of reach a large audience to write about things that they may not agree with too. Anyway, I don't want to talk too much about this anymore because it seems like I'm talking in circles. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, excited about 2020, even though things are pretty scary right now. Hopefully, we will get through all of it 
but I promise you that I want to get better at this podcast. My resolution for the previous year was to be a better listener. That's still my top goal for this thing. I think listening is a skill set. I never saw it as such, but learning when to listen and learning when to shut up, that's something I still need to work on. I need to stop talking about myself so much and um, I got to be more articulate and a little bit more eloquent. I'm trying. This is not something that comes naturally to me, but I think I'm getting better. I hope you guys agree. And uh, the last thing, I got to stop cursing. Number one, I can't curse in front of Hugo. And now I just, I listen to it, me speak sometimes, and I just cringe because it's become like Tourette syndrome. That's what sometimes it feels like. I just have no other ways to express myself. And I have to find different ways because I'm a grown fucking man. There, you see, I just cursed. It's so natural for me to curse. But I don't know what to do. Tip jar, whatever. But every morning I, I, I think about a few things. I wouldn't quite call it meditation. It's about not getting angry, controlling my temper, and uh, being present. And lastly, not cursing. And some of those things I'm getting better at, the cursing thing I am terrible at. So that's a real resolution. So hopefully you guys will see some improvement in that. You know, I'll I tell you the truth. I don't like to hear so much when I'm walking around, whether at the airport or New York or LA, wherever. I hate hearing like compliments. I think that's a product of me growing up in a tiger parent household. It's very strange to me. It's, it doesn't feel like I can believe it. I don't know why. But it's amazing to me for all the support we've had and all the listenership and your continued support means the world to me. And the weird thing is, is a lot of people come up to me and say they love the podcast or they listen to it. I'm at the Palazzo in Venetian because we're over at Major Dome Meat and Fish. And the other day I was at Walgreens and right when I entered Walgreens, someone said, hey, I love your podcast. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Thank you very much. And then I went to pick up my prescriptions. The pharmacist said, I love your podcast. And I was like, wow, this isn't a humble brag. I, it really isn't. I'm just trying to explain to you how honored I am that you guys would believe that in a casino in Las Vegas at a Walgreens. I never expected two people to say they like the podcast and uh, it means the world to me. And that's a compliment that I am very gracious for and accept and I uh, want to get better for it. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of the Day Chang Show is brought to you by Buckley. We all know that good food comes from good ingredients, and the same applies to pet food. That's why Buckley Dog Food is all about quality, real ingredients. Their food only contains fresh meat and whole ingredients and never any rendered meat meals, which are the cheap way many pet foods spike protein levels in their food. And also, if you find out and do some homework on it, it's not very pleasing to think about. Meat meals contain terrible stuff, including meat from diseased animals, and they lower your dog's ability to digest the protein and get the nutrients they need. But Buckley's dry recipe have an average protein digestibility over 90%, while industry averages around 70%. Buckley's recipes are preferred five to one because they don't have any rendered meat meals, byproducts, or fill ingredients. Just fresh meat and whole ingredients. My dog, Sevy, he's a rescue dog from Georgia, is a very picky eater and he's one of the few dogs that isn't motivated by food and I just learned that he just likes certain things including Buckley and he loves Buckley so go to buckleypet.com slash Chang C-H-A-N-G and use the code Chang for 20% off your first order 
and learn about their dog food subscriptions. That's B-U-C-K-L-E-Y-P-E-T dot com slash Chang and use the code Chang for 20% off. Today's show is also brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to cook French food from Thomas Keller, California cuisine from Alice Waters, and even how to be a boss like Disney's Bob Iger. There are over 60 different instructors across tons of categories. There is literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV. And each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. The all-access membership charged annually gives you unlimited access to over 60 classes and 200 hours of lessons taught by the world's best. Masterclass is amazing. I don't know how they got the very best in every field to give their secrets to success. Masterclass is amazing for the generalist, the person that's trying to just always constantly learn or just be better at something like cooking. Like, I can't believe how good the video lessons are for cooking. They are extremely detailed and they really give you the secrets. Like Gordon Ramsay's dishes are better on Masterclass than buying cookbooks. I think I highly recommend you check it out. As a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. That's unlimited access to every Masterclass. So go to masterclass.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's masterclass.com slash Chang for 15% off Masterclass. And now, back to the show. We read everything, guys. We get a lot of emails at askdave at majordomamedia.com. They're not all questions. There are a lot of emails, some very congratulatory, some very critical. We still read them because we want to get better. We will try our best to answer all the questions you send at askdave at majordomamedia.com. And also, again, credit to Mina Kimes. If you give us five stars on our iTunes Apple page and then ask a question, we will answer it. So... We have a lot of questions. I actually thought this podcast was going to be a just giant mailbag. So let's get started. Aaron Ho sends in to askdave at majordomamedia.com. In the past, you've talked about Momofuku exploring different kinds of restaurants. I was curious about what areas you're most excited to get into. Like, will you ever open a teppanyaki place, preferably in Chicago? Well, Aaron, I love Chicago. Hopefully we'll get there one day. But I am excited about this line that Jerry Saltz said in our podcast that in art technique is redefining skill, not what we believe skill to be. And I translated that as in the culinary term is skill is what ambitious cooks always try to acquire. I want to be the best butcher. I want to be the best fish cook. I want to be the best pastry chef. I need to be better at canaling. I need to be the best nice skill, blah, blah, blah. And that is not what Jerry was saying. He was saying that real technique is redefining how you even think about it. And you can see that through human history in the creative process, in art, in literature, in movies, in music, where all of a sudden, because someone created something new with a new perspective or combining old with new ideas, they've changed the entire paradigm of how you do something. I love that. It really gives me life, gives me meaning. And 
That's what I always hope Momofuku's after. I think the best version of our restaurants are when we try to do something like that, even when we fail. And that's the thing that I've been trying to focus on. And I was really grateful that Jerry spoke about that definition of technique, that it's redefining skill. And I've been really wrestling with what that meant. And we've opened a variety of restaurants over the few years, past few years. And if you work with me, you'll know that I say this, we're opening a sports bar, just open a sports bar. And part of that is to get people out of the mindset that it's got to be cool. Fuck cool. We're not trying to make a cool restaurant. We're trying to make something extraordinary, but also just like, don't think about it so much about like what everyone else is doing. Cause I don't think any ambitious cook or cooks that I know I could be wrong. Want to open up a sports bar. If you ask me when I came out of cooking school, would you open a sports bar? I'd say no fucking way. That's too lowbrow. And I had my head up my ass and I think I've only recently gotten my head out of my ass because people love sports bars. I like sports bars. I love Buffalo wings. I love hamburgers. I love nachos. So the question then is not that we're going to open a sports bar, right? We're not going to open a sports bar for the record. We may be one day, but I try to remind myself and my team, if we had to open a sports bar, would we make it amazing? I think we would. I also think we'd keep it simple. We wouldn't try to deconstruct nachos or do whatever, whatever. We tried to find ways to add, to make it different without reinventing the whole genre. And that's what I mean by let's just open a sports bar is keep it simple, stupid, make it delicious. Don't worry about cool. And wouldn't it be amazing though, as like a benchmark, if in 2021, when people do their year-end roundups, journalists said, I think the best meal I had this past year was a sports bar. Like, if you can imagine that, why can't that be true? And that's the way I look at it, is you don't necessarily have to open a sports bar. You could, certainly, but what if it was some other genre of food or cooking that isn't cool, that no one would ever think greatness could come from? And it's that same kind of ignorance that limits our diversity and variety that we so cherish in our world and food. It's the same kind of ignorance that you see in other facets of life that are just stupid and myopic. And we don't need to go down that road, but I do believe those are just different shades of black. But it's the same kind of ignorance that I see in food, and I'm guilty of just as much as anyone else. Can great food come from a restaurant that serves hamburgers and wings? Why not? Could it be the best restaurant? Why not? And it's like saying like the best restaurant in New York City or LA couldn't be Armenian food or food from Lebanon or food from Iran. And that's not necessarily what I think people believe in. Like we got to keep all options on the table. And that's what I mean by we're going to open a sports bar. It's a reminder that anything's possible to truly remind ourselves that cultural truths and status quo is dumb as fuck. So let's avoid that at all costs. So I don't know what kind of restaurant we're going to eventually open up, but I will tell you that one day, maybe we'll open a sports bar. One day, we'll maybe open a buffet. In fact, in Las Vegas, we've been doing some dry runs of what a buffet might look like. And the first day we did it was probably the most exhilarating, exciting feelings I've ever had in a restaurant. Because 
We didn't know what we were doing. We just decided to set it up. We gave our front of the house staff very simple instructions and our cooks very simple instructions. And I just decided to do it one day. And we fed 40 people, 40 of our own staff. And it was so good. It was fun. It was engaging. People were bombarded with food. I don't want to talk too much about it because we may or may not do it. I think we're going to do it, but it's certainly a way of us exploring what a buffet looks like, an all-you-can-eat buffet. And it's not just trying to be contrarian. I think that there's nothing left to mine. We just have to do what's already been done, do it a little bit better, update it. And I think a buffet, to me, is my version of a sports bar right now. And it's something that I am passionate about. I love the fact that people love all-you-can-eat buffets. People love Fogo de Chao. People love casino buffets. Like, why would we not want to explore what people love? And is there a way to do it better? Can we drive value to the customer? Can we make it delicious? Can we give great service? And I think we can. So I am always reminded of Arnold's in Nashville. It's one of my favorite restaurants. And I don't know why people don't do it a lot. I grew up going to a thing called Hot Shop, which was a sort of a cafeteria run by Marriott. When I wasn't eating Japanese food with my Korean grandfather, who was basically Japanese, we would go to Hot Shop, and I loved it. And everything old will be new once again. And wouldn't it be amazing, again, if the best restaurant of the year, the best meal of your life, the award-winning restaurant was an all-you-can-eat buffet? Like, how amazing would that be? Who said that can't happen, right? Like, no one. Yet people say it all the time. And it's that kind of response when I ask someone, is something possible? And if someone says, without any empirical evidence or data, that's just the way it's been done. Or if someone says, you can't do a fake, it's stupid. I'm definitely going to explore. If it's stupid because that's just someone's gut feeling, that's not what I want. If it's a cultural truth, I'm definitely going to try to do it then. Because I think most cultural truths are wrong. At least with food. Let me let me rephrase that to food. So we are exploring what that looks like. We are also looking at what Korean barbecue looks like. We're still in the soft opening stages of what Bar Wyo and South Street Seaport in New York City. You know, when you tell someone you have a tabletop grill, I think most people immediately put a ceiling on what that food could be because it's Korean barbecue. Yet if you call it yakiniku, it's maybe a little bit more higher end. And there's plenty of restaurants in Korea and Japan that have tabletop grills that have nothing to do with Korean barbecue. And it could be shabu shabu. It could be cooking over an open flame, doing a donabe. Uh, there's things that haven't been done, I think, that have penetrated popular food consciousness of what tabletop grilling could be. We are definitely going to do Korean barbecue, but we are going to try to explore different ways of utilizing that grill because when I take away what traditionally is cooked on a tabletop grill, this is like real experiential. It's having a hearth at your table where you can cook food at. I mean, I think that this could be one of the most like exciting things we've ever done. It could not work, but we understand that. But it's worth trying, trying something new for us, but knowing full well that it's not new at all in the world. And... You know, I'll tell you another thing. I, I went to my first Indian wedding in India last year, and they served 2,000 people, and everyone ate and stuffed their bellies in like 45 minutes, and it was glorious. The food was delicious. 
And I don't want to copy the food because I have too much respect for Indian food, namely because I don't really know too much about Indian food. But the style of service and how the food looked on the plate, that gave me life. And maybe there's something to do there. Like, why does everything have to be composed? Why does everything have to be based from vestiges of Europe and France? There's the rest of the world to explore, not to copy, but to be inspired from. And that's the shit that I want to explore with Momofuku. Aaron, I know I digress from your question. Teppanyaki, I will tell you, I've thought a lot about it, a lot. Maybe one day we'll do it. I just haven't seen the angle as to which that we would want to explore with teppanyaki for two reasons. One is there's Benihana and a lot of imitators of Benihana, and they're all great. Even when it's done poorly, I love it. And in Japan, you have real teppanyaki, and it's different, but I don't know if that's going to translate to America. Teppanyaki works in Japan because everything's bite-sized. Everything's smaller. Everything makes a little bit more sense in terms of how food is eaten in an Asian setting than it does with a Western palate and Western foods. And I think that's hard to describe unless you've had real teppanyaki in Japan. But I just don't feel like Eurocentric Western American foods work that well in a teppanyaki uh, from a higher-end setting. And the other reason why I'm not too passionate right now about exploring teppanyaki is America has teppanyaki. It's the diner. It's short order cooking, which is a beautiful art form. It really is. And I don't think there's anything to do on a griddle that hasn't been done already. Like IHOP or House of Pancakes or Waffle House, that's teppanyaki. If I go to Veselka, that's teppanyaki, to me at least. And there's nothing to do other than go there and eat it because there's nothing left to like explore, put your fingerprints on. Maybe in a couple of years, there'll be some angle that I'm not seeing, but, or I encourage someone else to explore it. But right now, I personally don't think there's any angle to explore in teppanyaki. I personally think for us, there's more to explore in what a tabletop grill is and buffets, which leads us to the next question by Jesse Davis, who sends in to ask Dave at majordomomedia.com. Chang, I know you're a big sports fan with the NFL season coming to a close. I have two questions. How's your fantasy team do? And what's your favorite storyline this year? Fantasy team, I'm not too worried about anymore. I don't know why I play it because uh, I always have the best team, score the most points, but I never win the championship team. We've talked about Lamar Jackson in the past. He's going to win the MVP and he destroyed all these kinds of records. And how he, he basically said, fuck you to everyone that said he couldn't be a quarterback. And how the Ravens had the humility to throw everything away and start anew and to build a team around the special talents of Lamar Jackson. And it was very progressive. They were very progressive by going back in time and updating some very old football tenants. And very smart because the NFL's gotten smaller in terms of the defensive front and geared towards passing. So the Ravens just went the opposite. They were going to get bigger, stronger, and a different kind of football team that was going to take advantage of the teams assembled on the defensive end. And it's worked incredibly well. And that not just that, the relationship with the Jim Harbaugh, the humility of Lamar Jackson gives me so much hope for food. And again, just studying how they overhaul their playbook to build around the talents of their team and not saying that everything has to bend around the will of the coach. And I've been that kind of bad coach before. And it's, it's great to see when um, you swallow your pride and you let go of hubris, what kind of excellence you guys can pursue. So 
that kind of offense tied together with the success of RPO run pass offense and the air raid spread system, things that are very new college high school ideas. If you told the NFL that this was going to be successful 10, 15 years ago, say that's not football. That's like child's play. That's, that's not football at all. And again, it's a different way of looking at it, but the fact that it works is powerful to me. And I got a lot of meaning from it. And I said, what else is out there in food that we say is stupid, right? What else in food do we say? That's just a sports bar. We can't do it. That's not cool enough. And again, the sports bar vehicle allowed me to really think about the buffet and how it sort of is the RPO of restaurants, right? It's very streamlined. You get the ball out very quickly. You get the food to the customer very quickly. It's highly effective. It's efficient. People love it. You score a lot of points. And I wanted the buffet really to be some version of what is not just an RPO, but of the Ravens offense. Man, it sounds like I've done a lot of drugs in my life. So I know it sounds crazy, but Jesse Davis, I will continue to derive meaning from the Baltimore Ravens. I hope they win the Super Bowl. And I couldn't root for Lamar Jackson more. It's like one of my favorite athletes. And John Harbaugh as an executive has been amazing. So if and when we get this all-you-can-eat buffet restaurant open in Las Vegas, know that it was inspired by the 2019-2020 Baltimore Ravens. Speaking of being pragmatic and useful, I want to give one cooking pointers, and we don't get too many, or maybe I don't answer them the way people want, but Ellie Pearson sends in to ask David Major Noma Media, I'm wondering what kinds of things he had eaten in the Chang household over the holidays. Do you end up doing all the cooking, looking for inspiration, but mostly I'm just insanely curious? Well, Ellie, on the first season of Ugly Delicious on Netflix, we have the Thanksgiving Day episode, and you get a look at what at least... My mother and my family eats and cooks over Thanksgiving and on New Year's Day as well. It's like the best of the American classics, Thanksgiving, turkey stuffing, sweet potatoes, pumpkin pie, all that stuff with Korean celebratory things. Kalbi jim with chestnuts, which is Korean braised short ribs. We have my aunt's white bread, shrimp rolls. We have chapche, which is Korean vermicelli with all these assortment of vegetables, kimchi, rice. It's the best, man. It is the best meal. And it's something I always feel bad for people that don't come from immigrant households that, to America because I found that a lot of my friends that come from immigrant families, their Thanksgiving Day is an amalgamation of all the countries that their parents and relatives came from combined with America. And I can't think of anything more American than that. And it's a beautiful thing. And I love that holiday because of that. And I think it's something we want to explore more about Thanksgiving to immigrant households and the delicious foods that are made there. But this year, we didn't get to do that. We had planned to go to our friend's house in Long Island, but we didn't get a chance because Hugo was very sick and we all wound up not being able to leave. And I didn't plan on cooking anything, but I ran to the grocery store, bought turkey, made stuffing, made green beans. It was a very more traditional American Thanksgiving this year sweet potatoes, mashed potatoes. I will tell you, Ali, the one tip that I did use a lot, I cooked everything in under like three hours, which was crazy. The turkey came out amazing. And I hate cooking turkey. I wouldn't have cooked turkey if I had more time. I use the microwave. I've been using the microwave a lot. The microwave for mashed potatoes is the only way to make mashed potatoes as far as I'm concerned. And if you're afraid of the microwave, you shouldn't use your computer or you shouldn't use your cell phone because 
the science behind you not wanting to use a microwave is incorrect and is a total fallacy. That's not opinion as fact. That is just fucking fact. So the microwave is an amazing tool. And I was able to shave off a ton of time by cooking cream spinach. Almost everything that I could cook in the microwave, I did cook in the microwave. So if you want inspiration, use your fucking microwave. I, Ellie, I didn't mean to curse at you. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and Christmas, I just cooked duck. I bought a duck, seasoned it with Momofuku tingly salt, which was amazing. And I took the legs and, and carcass off and I cooked the breasts on the cage and I made a donabe of rice and uh, I braised the legs and I picked it all off and I put it on the rice and I reduced the stock, the soup, and I put it over the rice and I just sliced the duck breast and we served it that way. And it was delicious. And I made mashed potatoes again. It was only four of us with my in-laws and I made cream spinach again because uh, that's delicious. And I always make stuffing. And this time I made stuffing with um, sage and breakfast sausage. What else? Chicken stock and a loaf of bread from Sean Gray, who I think makes some of the best sourdough out there. And it was delicious. And uh, that was it. Ellie, I'm working on a cookbook. So a lot of these things that I cook, you will know soon enough. Thanks for sending that in. I don't know if I answered your question. Uh, Tribal Joe on iTunes asks, love the podcast, wide range of topics and guests, and always useful conversation. It led me to great books like Range and Grit. But how do you reconcile the two? Sticking with something and gaining depth versus trying everything to essentially cross-train. Thanks for sending that in, Tribal Joe. The best way I can describe this is this, and I've said this before, and sorry to be a broken record, but I tell my cooks and chefs when they're learning to season their dishes with salt that it's got to be simultaneously under-seasoned, simultaneously over-seasoned, 100% too salty and 100% not salty enough. And that's the paradox that I want. And it's a very yin and yang type of thing, but it's the same kind of pattern that I look at in a lot of different things. And paradox is very important to me. It's not something that's very comfortable to people, but that's the advice that I would give you, Tribal Joe, is Range by David Epstein, terrific book. Angela Duckworth's Grit, amazing. And you're right. It's sticking with something versus trying everything, right? And cross-training. Like, essentially, be a generalist or be a specialist. And how do you separate the two? How do you do both? And I'm going to tell you this, Tribal Joe, this is what I try to do for myself, is you have to be 100% a generalist and you have to be 100% a specialist not 50-50, not 70-30. You have to be committed to both simultaneously. And I think that's how you reconcile the two. Mike Richard on iTunes sends in, I'm planning a trip to Japan for 2020 and will be a first-time guest with only very basic Japanese language skills. Any recommendations to experience the food culture while being respectful of traditions that I may not know about? Well, Mike, hope you have a great time. It's by far my favorite place to eat and travel. I will tell you that before you go, check your data plan because Japan's data plans on your American or if you're from America are different. So make sure you have a data package that's not going to screw you because you're going to use your phone a lot. When I first lived in Japan in 99, it was impossible to get around because there was no navigation tools or translation tools. So having Google Translate will be important. You don't have to speak Japanese. Know that. I don't know if it's still mandatory, but when I lived in Japan, I actually taught English in Japan, 99, everyone can read and write. And I knew that their grammar was actually better than mine, but a lot of people in Japan know English, but they don't speak it conversationally. So 
don't be surprised if you speak to someone in English and they actually know what you're talking about, but they just feel uncomfortable talking to you in English. But there are a lot of English speakers in Japan, so it's not important, but you should do your best to speak as much Japanese. And my Japanese is better than my Korean, and my Japanese is not great, but it's important to to be respectful and to show that you're trying. And uh, it's very easy to get around Japan now with your smartphone. So make sure you get that data plan before you go. Um, recommendations. Listen, the one aspect to staying in a nice hotel is you have a great concierge. You don't have to. A lot of my friends are staying in Airbnbs in amazing locations. And I love that experience. But the one thing is if you don't have connects, it's hard. Like Airbnb has, I think, more specialized programs that can get you into places. But still right now, the concierge at a good hotel can get you into some restaurants, not all the restaurants. We've talked about in the past that a lot of the top restaurants in Japan are removing reservations from their systems because Americans and tourists are fucking it up so much that these great restaurants that are very intimate don't want their business. So it's now invite only. So don't be surprised if a lot of these restaurants you can't get into because you need to be vouched for. You need to be a good eater to be invited. That being said, I think you should look at Little Meg on Instagram. Margaret Lamb is her name. She is uh, one of the true gourmands in the world and a real advocate for Japanese food etiquette. The number one thing I would tell you is speak softly and quietly. I'm a loud motherfucker. If I can speak softly and quietly in a Japanese restaurant, anyone can, because that's just something most tourists don't do. The other thing is show up early for reservation. It is incredibly disrespectful to show up late and don't expect a confirmation call if you do make a reservation at a restaurant, because that's not what they do. They just expect you to honor your commitment. And I think lastly, like right now is Scirocco. So it's a cod sperm season and it's a real delicacy and it's a really beloved item in Japanese cuisine. Cod sperm sounds terrible, but it is delicious. It's just something that I'm not always comfortable eating. Sometimes I like it. Most of the times I don't, but I've never not eaten it in a Japanese restaurant, particularly when I'm in a restaurant where it's a kaiseki or it's being served to me in a, a progression of food because I don't want to be disrespectful. And I know how how much it's beloved. If I don't want to eat it, that's not right. So I will always eat it. But if I had an allergy, you need to tell someone ahead of time. You can't tell them at the restaurant. You can't say, I don't like this. And it can't be a fake allergy. They will do their best to accommodate you, but let them know as much as possible in advance. Not like two hours before. Try like 21 days before. Tell them, hey, I can't eat this. I'm positive they will work very hard to accommodate. But don't do something because you just don't like it. That's so bad. There's a bunch of other tips. I actually think, Mike, Richard, this is a great podcast about the protocol and etiquette of eating in Japan. I am happy that you're getting to go. It's amazing. Everything's so fun. I will dare say it's going to change your life. There's no food culture quite like it. And uh, eat some very delicious things. Anyway, guys, thank you for your continued support. Trying hard to get better. Stay tuned next week for what we hope to be a pre-opening diaries of Major Domo Meat and Fish. Take it easy. Give us five stars however you rate this podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, and iTunes. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs>